Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Um, I hope you're having a decent weekend. I hope Mother's Day is treating all mothers out there well. And I hope that um, if you haven't called your mother, that you do so, because <laughs> it's Mother's Day. Um, and I wanted to say also my wife and I this weekend are celebrating our third wedding anniversary. Yay. So having, uh, having some fun this weekend. So, uh, of course, I'm going to answer your questions also, but I do want to make sure everybody knows that we just posted a pretty good podcast um, about uh, Avatar. And Avatar is a Scientology offshoot. It is a squirrel group, according to Scientology. Um, it was created by a Scientologist, a, a person who was a Scientologist, and he decided after some kerfuffle or whatever with the church that he was going to go off and do his own thing. This guy's name is Harry Palmer, and he created it a completely abusive system of Scientology-like authoritarian control and called it Avatar. And it is the most ridiculous bunch of nonsense I've ever heard of. So we had a whole podcast interview with a woman named Ariella uh, Sarai, who was a wonderful guest and um, broke it all down for us. And we got to talk and compare and contrast and and that sort of thing. So if you haven't seen that, I encourage you to do so. All right, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. We've got some pretty deep, interesting ones this week. Dylan Chatterton, how important is the way to happiness to a full-time Scientologist going up the bridge? Is it a requirement at any point in Scientology? I've always been quite intrigued by this book because it reads nothing like your typical Scientology material written by Hubbard. Did he actually write it? Was the initial intended purpose of it to be used as a gateway into the org as it's used now in Scientology's front groups? Thanks for this question, Dylan. It's a very good one. And The Way to Happiness has um, a kind of interesting uh, background, uh, backstory to it. For those of you who don't know, The Way to Happiness is Scientology's non-secular, uh, secular, non-religious moral code. It's uh, L. Ron Hubbard had the guts and balls to actually uh, very hypocritically sit down and write, a, I believe it's 21 or 24 precepts that make up this moral code called The Way to Happiness. And Hubbard asserts in this pamphlet-sized book which is also printed as a hardcover book, but it's it's a pretty short read. Um, and it just kind of breaks down these 24, 21, like I said, I didn't even look it up, number of precepts. And then there's little sub-precepts under them. For example, there's take good care of yourself. And then under that, you have, you know, take good care of your teeth, shower, keep your body clean, you know, eat right. So that would all be under that precept of take care of yourself. And then there's do not murder, which is pretty clear. Doesn't need a whole lot of sub precepts under it. It's just don't murder people. Uh, don't steal. Don't hurt a person of good intent. Um, you know, support and love your parents. Uh, support a government uh, established for and run by and for the people. You know, these kind of, kind of pro-Western values, pro-democracy kind of uh, moral code. And it would not be universally ap ap applicable or appealing to the world at large, but Scientology throws it out there as a as a way to try to get people on some common ground. And it is definitely aligned around principles that most people in Western societies especially would immediately agree with, and quite a few in Eastern societies, in Middle East even, 
it's been passed out there. It's been given out. And, um, you know, to whatever result, good, bad, sideways, it's been, you know, given out all over the world. Uh, There's been millions and millions and millions of these things printed, and and we'll, we'll get to that. So Hubbard created this book. He wrote this book back in, I believe it was 1980. That's why I think that's when it was published. And this was a direct response. This was done in response to and as part of the overall PR handling, the public relations, you know, damage control that Scientology had to engage in in the late 1970s and early 80s in order to try to push back against the horribly bad public perception that they had at that point. Following the 1977 FBI raid on the Los Angeles uh, base and um, raids that were done, I believe, up in Canada as well, where the whole Operation Snow White thing kind of was exposed and fell apart. And I'm not going to go into all the detail on that. It's 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 totally ancillary to the it's just backstory for the way to happiness. But um, but if you're if you're curious, excuse me, there are. I, th- I think there's a whole Wikipedia page on Operation Snow White, which you can look up. It's It was quite an extensive operation. It was an intelligence, covert intelligence operation. Scientology ran on the U.S. and very and other governments around the world, infiltrated them, stole things. So uh, they got busted. They got busted really hard. And it was front page news and it was a big deal. And Scientology's name was Mud. And L. Ron Hubbard uh, was in a lot of trouble. He was an unindicted co-conspirator, along with 11 other Scientologists, including his wife. And while Hubbard was never officially indicted, his wife and those other Scientologists were. And they went to jail. And, uh, and like I said, L. Ron Hubbard had a real public relations disaster nightmare on his hands with this. Uh, all of his own making. L. Ron Hubbard was the one who originated and enforced and ran this whole operation. So that's why I say it was like quite ballsy and hypocritical of him to then turn around and present a moral code, a code of conduct of how to live a life of honesty and virtue and integrity to, to the world at large when when he was one of the biggest criminals ever. <laughs> okay, so what? So that's what the way to happiness is is, and you asked how important is it to people going up the bridge? Well, truthfully, not very. Um, Scientologists almost uniformly agree with, read, you know, like the way to happiness. There's there's very few things about it to not like. It's it, it's very general. It's It was designed to appeal to the most number of people possible. That was the point, was to get Scientology's name out of the mud by showing that it is something that is good and positions itself with integrity and honesty. And, you know, this is who we are. This this whole this whole thing that the that all these people going to jail and all this, this was just a government setup. We didn't do any of that. We're good people, right? We're the we're the best people. In fact, Hubbard has written. Uh, that Scientologists are the most ethical people on the planet. And I don't just point that out for the hypocrisy value, but to, but to make the point that Scientologists are indoctrinated by Hubbard, even without the way to happiness, that they are the most ethical people just because they're Scientologists. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a status thing. See, status or a label isn't what makes you a virtuous or good person. It's just a word that somebody connects with you. 
whether that word is suppressive person or whether that person is or that word is saint, it doesn't matter. Those are just stupid labels. It's what you do. But PR is all about imagery and it's about association. And so Hubbard and Hubbard knew this. And it was a constant refrain. It was a constant strategy, rather, for him through the years of Scientology. And it was a successful strategy for him to position Scientology, Dianetics, Scientology, and his whole activity as being um, ethical, moral, uh, righteous, um, uh, workable, scientific, philosophical, truth right? Save the world kind of thing. Like all of these things are what Hubbard was constantly positioning Scientology as. And he was constantly positioning the enemy, like psychiatry, as evil, horrible, murderous, um, authoritarian, like everything that Scientology is, Hubbard said his enemies were. He was purposefully reversing the image, you could say, right? He was purposefully like sort of casting all of their characteristics over there. It was one big misdirector, basically, and that's the PR end of it. Well, the way to happiness was a continuation of that kind of strategy, right? Here we are, totally busted, totally our asses out in the wind. You know, people are going to jail, including L. Ron Hubbard's own wife. And what does he do? He responds with his usual PR strategy of, well, let's position the government as the bad guys and we're the good guys because, look, here's a moral code. Would a bad person write this? You know, would a, would a, would a, would a horrible person be capable of thinking and, pro and promoting and writing virtuous precepts that everybody should follow, right? Like, it's this kind of thinking. It's, it's very shallow. I mean, but it... Unfortunately, in the PR world, it, it, it works. Now, it didn't work like gangbusters with Scientology, but it has been, over the years, a great vehicle for Scientology to use to create inroads as a front group activity uh, around the world. Because no one can really argue very vehemently against the way to happiness unless you know all this backstory. And then you can just call out the hypocrisy of it. But even then, the purity of the just the book, The Way to Happiness, th there really isn't a whole lot wrong with it. It's not necessarily going to achieve happiness, but, but you know, don't murder, don't steal, respect your parents. You know, I mean, they, they, these are not, there's nothing wrong with any of that. There's no little weird curves. I mean, you know, there's a couple little Scientological, you know, little little bits and pieces here and there. But for the most part... Um, you know, there's really nothing wrong with it. Okay, now, there is only one point on the bridge for Scientologists where they are going to have to pay attention to this book. Otherwise, you could do Scientology and never really pay attention to even have to read or have much to do with The Way to Happiness, except for this one service, and it is called the happiness rundown. And it's pretty low on the bridge. It's uh, it's one of the first things that you could do. Not everybody is directed to do it. It's one of these sort of optional rundowns that um, a case supervisor can say, well, this person's going to need it and this other person's not going to need it. Um, I think the deciding factor on this, this, see, this was something I wasn't even super familiar with. I think I saw a handful of these delivered 
over the years that I was in because it wasn't a very popular rundown while I was in, and it was not on the bridge until the later years of Scientology. Um, Miscavige revised the grade chart, and that's when it reappeared on there. It was first developed when the book came out back in 1980, 1981. And it was a series of questions and commands that were given to Scientologists as a rundown. So it would be an, an ongoing series of sessions. It wouldn't just be one or two sessions. It would be an extensive action. It would probably take around 25 to 50 hours of auditing to get through. And it involves false data stripping and other work using the Way to Happiness book, precept by precept, to not only recall times that you have violated these precepts or times you followed the precepts, so you get the plus and the minus, right? But you also uh, look for an eradicator, try to try to remove false information the person might have received over the years about these different precepts, various justifications and reasons why it's okay to not take care of yourself, not honor your parents, you know, this kind of stuff. So, um, so it's, you know, in standard Hubbard fashion, it was about, okay, well, have you violated it? How have you screwed it up? How have you been a bad boy with this? And let's get all that documented and looked over. And then maybe that will sort of, you know, pop any tendencies or urges you might have to continue to be an immoral person. It's kind of the, kind of what the point of the rundown is. And that's why it's kind of low on the bridge. And it's, um, I, you know, again, nothing particularly super objectionable there. It's kind of lightweight auditing as far as that goes. It's not like the OT levels or something like that where it's more heavy duty and psychologically like, you know, kind of damaging. But it's not something that I would ever recommend somebody do. You know, I, I, as I've said many, many times, I don't endorse any part of this crap. Um, because it's part of an authoritarian structure and system and a snitch culture and all kinds of other things that you just don't want to have anything to do with. Um, as, this, as far as the rundown itself goes, the actions that are done are all relative because morality, let's face it, is relative. And I know that's a big argument in the, in the apologetics world, but, um, but it is. We all have our own ideas of what's right, wrong, good, or bad. And there is no objective moral authority. You know, there are people who pretend to be, and there's an idea that God sort of is, but, you know, I, I, last time I checked, God didn't tell me what to do as far as right or wrong. I figure that out for myself. So, um, so that's, you know, so morality and ethics and good conduct and all that, these are fairly controversial topics for some people, and they can be difficult for others. So, um, so an examination, a review, some, you know, some counseling on the topic, something like that wouldn't necessarily be horrible. But, um, but the way to happiness isn't the way to go because you're really only going to kind of go in on that action with the way Scientology processes run. And the false data stripping I mentioned is one kind of action that's done that's not, it's not auditing, but it's kind of a, a memory kind of action where you're going to recall times in the past where people have given you information that you now believe or take to be false. But you could be wrong. I mean, I had all kinds of information in my head that was stripped out of me with false data stripping when I was in Scientology that were actually completely true pieces of information about science, about physics, about anatomy, about, you know, kind of kind of real world sciencey stuff that Hubbard didn't agree with or Scientology didn't agree with. And so, you know, it's all that's what I mean by the false data stripping being kind of relative. 
and you know the false and, and what you're going to pull is going to be kind of relative and you can use a tool like that to reinforce immoral or bad thinking as much as you could use it to pop or release ideas that might keep immoral behavior in, in place. It can go either way, you see. So this is why it's, it's a little risky um, getting into something like that and why I would never endorse it, okay? So just to kind of really explain the, the brass tacks of, of why that might not be a good thing to do. So um, I think most Scientologists, I think, are doing that rundown now as part of their journey up the bridge. But it is, it is far from the most significant thing that, um, that Scientologists do. It's, it's sort of a, a minor rundown, really, in the big scheme of things. And clearly, just to make the point, clearly we can see that doing this rundown doesn't make a person a better person if, if, if in the world of Scientology because people who do this rundown still support disconnection, still support covering up all the crimes and abuse of Scientology, and are still on the side of a destructive authoritarian cult. So, you know, how effective is that rundown really? <laughs> no, not very. Okay. Uh, you asked... Um, yeah, about the front groups, it's definitely part of the front group activity of Scientology. There is a, now a foundation called the Way to Happiness Foundation. I think it's in Burbank or Glendale in California. And they produce custom-made Way to Happiness booklets, uh, print-on-demand style, with custom covers. So you can get your own cover on there. It'll still say the Way to Happiness and L. Ron Hubbard's name, but the symbolism or the imagery on the cover might be your company. And you might have a, and, and they, they solicit for companies to do sponsorships of printing lots of copies of these and then passing them out at public events, sporting events, stuff like that. And it's supposed to give the company a good name or a good image because look, Way to Happiness, right? As long as you don't connect the dots with L. Ron Hubbard's name which I think more and more and more people do now. I mean, it would be a bit of a PR disaster to be for a company to be spreading around L. Ron Hubbard's works these days uh, because Scientology's name, again, is mud, as it should be. So you kind of get the idea of what this is all about, but I wanted to give you the full picture of it, so thanks for asking. There you go. Blake Nestle. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the current racial tension in the West, both socially and politically. A congressional representative who happens to be black gives a speech dissenting against Biden's first joint address, and Twitter permits a racial slur to trend in reference to him. A man who happens to be black films a mentally unwell hotel employee having a breakdown and has the audacity and callousness to ra racialize the issue. A policeman shoots a girl with a knife who is literally about to stab another girl in front of him and is lambasted as a vile racist with LeBron James tweeting a picture of him with the caption, You're next. For months, dozens of hate crimes targeting Asiatic people occur as the hashtag StopAsianHate goes nowhere, committed almost exclusively by non-white people. But the moment corporate media thinks a white person is the culprit, the hashtag trends, and it's front page news on every network. I suppose my question slash confusion comes from the seeming inconsistent response to discrimination, depending on the source. Why is racial prejudice socially acceptable when some people do it and repugnant when done by others? If it's a repulsive worldview, and I believe it is, 
then shouldn't it be reviled regardless of who the perpetrator is? All right, Blake, thank you for this question. And there are so many vectors or avenues I could take with this. So I'm going to take the media one. And this is something I have sort of ranted or railed against about before in the past. But let's talk about this a little bit in terms of the context of your question. Um, Racial tensions are a hot topic. And I'm going to do my best to not stick my foot in it here. But, um, you know, it's a little hard to talk objectively or fully rationally about this subject because there are so many groups who have some very, very heated ideas about this. And if you guys recall my podcasts from last summer when the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests and riots and all that were happening, um, you know, I had some choice things to say about the whole thing. I'm, as with the person Blake here who asked the question, I believe that racism is pretty universally reviled in Western countries. And when you sit down one-on-one with somebody and you talk about the subject, it's not hard to find, you know, common ground and agreement on that. I mean, you have to be talking to some pretty nasty folks or be associated with some pretty inept, ignorant, you know, people to um, to get to the, you know, the neo-Nazi classic Southern trope, you know, about uh, about racism or about racist ideas. Um you know, I, I think all, all of us have run into it at some point or another in our life. But um, but at least in the circles that I go in and have been in my entire life, racism has never been something that has been socially or politically acceptable, uh, nor wanted. And all the, you know, the groups fighting against it and pushing back against it, even violently. I mean, I understand. I get it. You know, it's a charged topic and people have lost their lives. Many, 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 many thousands of people have lost their lives because of this, you know, stupid concept of of racism. We're never really going to get rid of categorization of other people, nor are we ever going to really get away from othering people, right? This idea of us and them and they are bad and we are good. This is basic tribalism 101, and it's something that is built into the DNA of every single human being on this planet. There is no one, no one immune to it. And so the idea that, um, you know, that you're going to get away from this partisan, you know, sort of divided tribal sort of thinking, not in our current situation, not in our current form. So we really have to learn how to deal with it and and tolerate one another's differences and get along anyway. And that's what this whole thing has been all about from day one. And uh, the more ignorant people are, then the more difficult it is to get that across. Okay, now, that all being sort of said as a foundation or, you know, about where I'm coming from on this or how I sort of think about it or see it, Um, What I see in your question, Blake, is a lot of frustration over how this is represented in the media. And here we have a media problem rather than a people problem. That's kind of why I was just going on about all that is I want to make the point that I think most people get it. I really do. I honestly believe that. And if you, I think, I think this is true. Maybe I'm just projecting my own experiences on everybody else here. But I believe that if you look to the majority of people that you have encountered in your life 
and you were able to sit down with them and have even a semi-serious discussion of on the topic, almost one for one, people would agree with you that it is vile, horrible, awful that people get into this racist headset and uh, mindset and start going to town on that. And the violence and everything else, wholly unacceptable. I really do believe that it, that when it comes to the radicalized violence of, of racism or, or racially motivated violence, we are talking about a very small minority of people. That's my opinion about it based on everything I know on the topic. Um, so the media, though, the media have a different job than reporting reality. And I think we really need to just acknowledge the, the, the fact of that. The media is about selling things. The media is about making money. Okay, so let's kind of take the lie away now. Let's, let, let's like be adults now and let's like really talk about this. The media is not about the truth. And I'm talking about the news media now, of course. Social media has never been about anything but everybody's collective egos and ids clashing. But, uh, you know, along with flower pictures and, 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 and bunnies and kittens. Um, but news media at this point all around the world is about money. It's not about news. It's not about honest, honesty or integrity or objective reporting or giving you all the facts. That's no part of that machine. And if you think it is, you're putting something there that's not there. So when a news story breaks, the editorial section of the uh, news machine has to decide or has already decided based on whatever reasoning or agenda the, the news outlet has. And every single news outlet has agendas now. So the major ones. So, so their job is not oh, here's a news story, here's breaking news, let's get this information out. That's not their job. Their job is, here's this breaking news, how do I present this information to the world so that we make the most money doing it? And that explains or should explain a great deal of the nonsense that you see shoved at you in every single news cycle because it's constant. We're so dead to it now. We're so like, you know, plastered with bad news over and over and over and over and over again, biased, you know, horrible, just half-truths, untruths, you know, spin, 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 et cetera. That we're kind of we're kind of like so dead to it, we don't really think about it a whole lot. Um, but Blake, you have, and you are frustrated about this because you're pointing out a very specific example of how news isn't just objective information; it's spin. It's spin to make you upset. Because what do you do when you're upset? You keep clicking. You retweet. You share. Can you believe this? Can I cannot. I'm outraged. This is insane. This is outrageous. This is crazy. How could somebody? How could they? Well, the fact of the matter is that probably about 80% of the time, they didn't. That's not what actually happened. The thing you are mad about, the thing you're so outraged about, 
didn't even happen or it didn't happen the way it's reportedly reportedly happening you know but we're but but everybody's got their own see now here's the thing the news medias have their own agenda those agendas align with the demographic agenda of large swaths of the population in other words the public for that news media like fox news cnn msnbc they have their demographics worked out they know who they're trying to talk to they know who they're trying to rile up they know who is not listening to them or who listens to them out of who hate listens to them and who is listening to them favorably right and they and the messaging that comes down on how these stories are reported and the reporters, the big name uh, commentators and journalists that you know by name are the ones who understand their place in the system and go with it and run with it and contribute to this machinery, right? This is the Rachel Maddow's. This is the Sean Hannity's of the world. They see where they're at in this and they align their game to it, right? And so you see um, agenda-driven reporting. And the agenda is not just as necessarily political. Remember, the top number one important thing for the news media is to make money. They are profit organizations. And as long as news media is a for-profit industry, regardless of regulations or rules or government, whatever, as long as it's in it to make money, it's going to be a propaganda machine not an information machine. This is so important. Um, so, Blake, <laughs> you're reacting to the spin that you're seeing these stories given by the various platforms because they're trying to push us around. They're trying to get us outraged. They're trying to incite anxiety and stress and fear and upset. Because these are powerful emotions in the moment, they over time are damaging and wearing and they will, you know, this is not a good thing for a person, for any, any human being to have to, you know, continually be revved up, be anxiety driven, right? Be fear driven. But that's how these platforms make money. Because um, our brains, as I understand it, are about four or five times more sensitive to and more prone to glom on to bad news, bad information, threats, in other words, than, the, than our brains are tuned to look at non-threatening, you know, beneficent, nice, you know, bunny rabbits and kittens. Ah, that's the kind of comic relief or 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 pleasant relief we need to us, you know, to kind of like chill ourselves from all the bad, horrible crap that's being thrown at us as we we sort of help each other out with kitten videos and things like that. That's why those things are are as popular as they are. But but our brains are tuned to look for threats. And we don't have to worry too much about lions and bears and tigers anymore. So we, so the threat and the threat assessment of the modern world and the Western world especially is about symbols and imagery and ideas being thrown around. And this is why you get, you know, ridiculous ideas like words are violence. They are not. But, you know, there are people who now believe that's the case because we are so hyped up now on uh, ideas being dangerous. 
And the media contributes to this, right? How dare they say this? How dare they say that? That kind of thing, right? And all the free speech arguments and everything else. So, um, so I know I'm just kind of, kind of, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm rambling here, but I, I am addressing your question. But I feel that it's important that you know that you get that you're reacting to how the media is doing its job more so than you're reacting to everybody's ideas about racism. And this is a really important difference and the one I'm going to end this end this answer on, right? You don't know what the vast majority of Americans or the vast majority of people in Western societies actually think about racism and, and racist ideas and all that, because we're not given that information. You have to dive and study and look and go into actual studies that are done by, you know, reputable universities and think tanks to get that information. You will not find it ever on major news media publication houses or cable news networks, right? They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in making money. And they're going to tell you, like social media, the algorithms are not political. The algorithms are not conspiracy-minded. The algorithms are not conservative or liberal. The algorithms feed you what it thinks you want to see based on your history and all the things it knows about you. It's going to give you what it thinks you want to see so you will keep watching the truth has nothing to do with it. That's the social media algorithms. Well, the point I'm making is the news media pretty much operates on the same kind of algorithm. And that's the world that we live in right now. So, you know, it's, it's sort of when you watch the news, it's buyer beware. You have got to have a critical thinking lens on, tuned fully up when you're watching the media. The news media, yeah, just have to these days. Otherwise, you're going to be upset. You're going to react to things more than you're going to know about things. And it's going to be stressful. That's, that's by design. Okay. I think I've made my point, probably overmade it. So thank you for the question, Blake. That's my answer. And I hope you found it somewhat interesting and, uh, and useful to what you were asking for. Fish, I want to start applying more critical thinking to my everyday life, but I don't know where to start. It seems like so many of my decisions and reactions are just reflexive and don't take a lot of thought. How can I start being more conscious or aware when everything moves so fast and there's just so much to think about? You're doing a great service to the public here with your show. Okay, Fish, thank you very much for asking me this question. And it's a great follow-up to the last answer I gave uh, on the show here. So um, I'm going to try to be real simple about this. I'm not going to get into like, you know, all these like different crazy things people can do. I just want to, I, I kind of want to make a couple points on this and, and it's going to, it's going to take some work on your part. I mean, there really isn't any way around that. There is no simple Simon solution to how to keep your frontal lobes engaged. Okay. Um, when you're talking about rational thought or calm, chill, like, let me really think things through. We're talking about engaging the frontal lobes. And in order to do that, you can't be in fight or flight mode. You can't be all revved up. You can't be like, you know, high on adrenaline and like, ah, you know, I'm ready to go, right? That's, that's, that's the exact opposite of the calm, cool, collected thinking man or woman. 
So we don't want we don't want the revved up, riled up, rah, you know, mad person. And that's the reactionary side of us. That's the fight or flight amygdala fear response. Rah. So you know, so we don't want any of that. So how do we how do we sw- turn the switches in our brain? Well, it's kind of individual for each of us. But we have to, there's a couple of pieces of advice I can give on this. One is you got to practice. There's no on-off switch on this. This is not that kind of a problem to solve. It's a gradual thing. You have to train yourself to do this. It's an exercise that that your brain has to learn about because our, our natural tendencies are to be overly emotional and reactionary when we hear things we don't like or things that we think more specifically are threats to us. And threats don't have to be lions and bears and tigers anymore. Threats can be ideas. Threats can be words. We, we can now, that's the level that we operate on in modern society for, for a lot of the things we do now. Um, and so threat assessment that is done now is very conceptual rather than actually physical in a, in a great many ways. Um, you know, harmful ideas, things that, you know, ideas we disagree with, ideologies, um, belief sets, things like that, right? We find these things actually as threatening now as people used to think about, you know, spears being jabbed at you. So, um, so they're not necessarily that threatening, but we can overestimate the threat of an idea or a belief set or, um, or, you know, something we disagree with. We can, we, and in fact, we, we generally are pretty good at that. (laughs) So, um, so you have to practice working on your threat assessment, basically, so that you're more capable of recognizing when something is simply something you're not used to, something's new, something that might be like different for you, whether it's an idea, concept, uh, you know, uh, action, event, whatever. You know, acceptance isn't agreement and tolerance isn't agreement. But if you start approaching the world from the point of view that you're not all that, Nobody else is all that, and everybody's got their own ideas, and they've got very good reasons for having those ideas as far as they're concerned. If you just understand that much, then it's, it's, it's easier to not feel so threatened by other people's ideas or, or, or concepts or, or wishes or desires even. Just because somebody wants something doesn't mean that it has to be a threat to you or anybody else. Um, you know, who are they? Where are they? What kind of influence do they have? I mean, these are these are questions that are very important to the threat assessment. But in a great many cases on social media, I don't see people asking those questions before they start freaking out about stuff. Myself included in the past and times. Okay, Absolutely. You know, so this is something that I practice or try to practice all the time. Doesn't mean I'm always successful at it, and neither will you be. Don't don't kill yourself about that. Don't get down on yourself about that. This is something that is not at all. Critical thinking is not natural to us. It is a discipline. It's the same kind of discipline as martial arts training. Like really think about it that way. 
And if you want to get a black belt in it, you're going to have to work. There just isn't any other way to do it. Um, the practice involves learning about and practicing in, in whatever way. See, here's the thing about this is this is sort of a you can go to school, you can go to classrooms, you can read books, you can, you know, you can assimilate information about this. And there's a lot of information. I've, produ I've produced lots of videos about critical thinking. Other people have done way better work than I have on it. And, and you can read this stuff and learn about it. But you can't treat it like an academic exercise. It's not some ivory tower thing where, you know, okay, well, when everything's cool and calm, I'm really, I'm a great critical thinker, but in the moment I kind of suck. Well, that's where you have to work on the impulse control and that point of tolerance and understanding of where other people are coming from. That it's okay with you that other people disagree, you know, not see things your way, that maybe your way isn't always the best way. I mean, there's some humility connected with this too. I think that's a vital component of critical thinking because if you can't ever admit you're wrong, you're never going to do anything approximating critical thinking. So, you know, that's part of it. You got to be critical of self as well as critical of others. Um, so... So this is something that you practice, okay? And like I said, you have to practice it, though, however is best for you, right? And I, and I don't want to make things, I don't want to put it, dump it all back on you. I mean, but there are things you can do, everything from daily meditation exercises to, to discipline in yourself, to count to 10, maybe even just in the moment. You know, it's like, ah, uh, uh, okay, 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 what do I do? What do I do? Okay, one two, three, right? Even if it's just that, even that is a start. It's a good start. It's a good place to, to go. If you can, if you can like, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's only over, it's repetition. It's getting your brain used to you know, it's kind of, it's really is training your brain. It's, it's, it's mastering your impulse control and your and your tendency to react to you know threat assessment and regulating your threat assessment okay if we want to get kind of technical and all that but that's that's kind of where i'm going with that i think meditation is a good way to go with that um you know because it's kind of just practicing being chill can be a thing for some people if you can't sit still for longer than a minute or two this is something you should practice because it, it, it's a skill, and it's a good skill to have, being patient, being calm, able to just kind of like chill yourself out. <sighs> okay. That's the best advice I can give, at least at this moment. I hope it helped. Taffy Sinclair. I had a question about the use of numbers on Scientology's bridge, specifically with the auditor levels and org classes. What makes an org a class six? What makes an auditor a class 12? Does St. Hill size also have an arbitrary number? Great question, Taffy. Thank you for this. Um, the, the numbering system of the organizations aligns with or is in step with, excuse me, which services on the bridge they can deliver. So a class five org is your lowest level Scientology Church, the Church of Scientology of Denver, is a class five organization. Those are the city-level churches. 
Um, below that, you have missions. Those are not official churches. Those are more of, of public outreach activities that are designed to get people in, sell a lot of books, deliver some auditing and lower level training, and then ship the guys up to the next higher org. So the missions don't have a class number with them. There's no class system with the missions. It's only with the orgs, the organizations. Okay, they call them orgs for short because, of course, that's what Scientology does. They wouldn't want to call them churches. <laughs> they really don't. They call them orgs. Okay, so class five orgs are your lowest level. That means they can deliver up to class five on the bridge to total freedom. And the bridge goes from nothing, lower level, class zero is your lowest level training for auditors, up to class 12. 12 is the highest. On the, on the auditing side, it goes up to OT level 15, but that's, that's neither here nor there. The class system and the org numbering system is based on what level of auditor training they deliver, not what level of auditing processing they deliver. Um, and I've done a couple of videos breaking down the entire bridge, and I will put links to those in the, uh, to, to the first one of those in the show notes here so you can link to that. Because I break down and I show graphically what the what the bridge is and what all the services are and how it all breaks down. So if you haven't seen that you, you and you want to know about how Scientology works, then that would be an important part of it. Um, the uh, so the class system of training auditors is every next skill set that an auditor needs to learn is the next class. So you start at a class zero auditor and then you're a class one, class two, class three, all the way up to a class twelve. Um, okay, and I break down all the specifics of it in that other video. So you have uh, just a couple different kinds of organizations. You have a class five organization. That's your city level church. Everything above that is a Sea Org organization. So you have um, a class six organization is a St. Hill organization. That's not St. Hill size. It's, it's, it's called a St. Hill organization because it can deliver the auditor training course called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course. It's a big course. It covers the entire chronology of Scientology's development. It takes about a year full time to get through it. And that's why there's a whole separate organization whose main function is to deliver that course. Now, for the last many years, get this. They haven't been doing that. Miscavige pulled that course and nobody's doing it now. But he'll probably re-release it at some point because it's too much of a moneymaker not to. They were selling those courses for 20000 a pop. I mean, that's an expensive course and people were paying for it and, then, and arranging their lives to go do it. So the St. Hill organizations are a class six organization. The next step up is a class eight organization, and that's your advanced organizations. Those are the orgs that deliver the OT levels up through OT level five, but they also deliver auditor training up to class eight. So if you want to be a class eight auditor, you have to go to a class eight advanced organization. There's one in Los Angeles, um, and there's one in um, St. Hill in England and you know, all the Sea Org bases have a class six and a class eight organization. There is only one, the next step up, 
is the class 12 organization and that is flag the flag service organization in clearwater and that delivers auditor training all the way up to class 12. you have to be a sea org member in order to do that auditor training um, but that's the only place in the world you can do it is at flag in clearwater Okay, so that's how the class system for the orgs work, and I hope that I hope that helped. Also, the St. Hill size thing is a completely separate issue, has nothing to do with this, and I'm just going to leave it at that for now. Frank from ND. I've read a number of LRH short stories. Some are boring, some are delightfully bonkers, and the very best ones are like sub-mediocre Twilight Zone episodes. Scientology has a whole production studio and television channel. Why haven't they tried adapting his stories to television to lure in the wogs, quote-unquote, like Hubbard wanted? Are they afraid it will make them look less like a real religion, or did Battlefield Earth kind of poison the well? Thanks for this question, Frank. I could not even begin to know exactly why it is that David Miscavige refuses to do that kind of work with the Golden Era Production Studios and the, the other studio they had set up down in L.A., um, the, the TV, the Scientology TV setup. Um, my guess, my best guess at this is actually kind of along the lines of what you said. I think Battlefield Earth was such a disaster, was such a PR nightmare. I mean, let's not forget, and this has got to rile Miscavige. I mean, it really has to. This day, he's probably still pissed about this. Battlefield Earth is so bad it won Golden Raspberry Awards. I mean, it is recognized in the industry as one of the worst films ever made. It's not just my opinion. So that's L. Ron Hubbard's name is permanently attached to that. That was their best effort to bring his work, his fiction work, to the screen. And it was it was awful. I mean, I did a whole video review of it. It's 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 one of the worst movies ever. So, yeah, so they kind of don't really know how to do fiction work very well. And if you saw the quality of the in-house video work and film work that they do, you would know that these are not people who are capable of really putting together widely popular entertaining shows. Scientologists are not living in the real world. They are living in a bubble world. Their reality is not your reality. They view the world through a very different lens. And that lens is extremely disconnected from objective reality, and it's very disconnected from even cultural norms and realities. So they're not really i mean and this is a bit of a of a thing but they're not as a as a body and i'm talking specifically about the sea org now because they're the ones who are who are producing this content or would be producing this content that you're talking about here so this is why i can i can say with some you know with some uh certainty here that these are not people who are capable of making um high quality high grade movies and and tv shows uh that are going to have any kind of broad appeal i mean look at scientology tv those shows that they're producing are the very best productions those scientologists know how to make that's the best they've got and it sucks it's bad i mean if you go look at scientology tv 
it's horrible. You can see right through it. I mean, you can see how disassociated these people are. You can see how, like, you know, weird they can get. And and I know because I used to be one of them, right? So, um, so anyway, so that's why I believe they kind of know they're not capable of it at a very, very, very sub-level, you know. Um, they'd have to bring in some real talent in order to make up for that. And I don't think too many people these days are very interested in contributing to trying to improve Scientology's public image you know, or contribute to Scientology projects. They know, right? They know Scientology is toxic. It's authoritarian. It's abusive. Uh, it's murderous. I mean, it's, it's really bad. So people, you know, tend to correctly want to shy away from that. So their ability to pull in other talent and... You know, they're just not interested. I don't think Miscavige is at, is at all interested in repeating the mistakes of Battlefield Earth. And I think he, you know, he kind of looked at that and went, okay, well, that didn't work. We're never going to do that again. <laughs> you know? At least not the way they did. Now, that's just my conjecture. That is a thousand percent my conjecture. I have zero inside skinny on how that actually works. But that's that's my best guess. I hope it was somewhat useful to you. Thank you for asking. All right, let's do some flash answers. Joni DeRoshi. While Googling around for information, I discovered this amazing bit of nonsense. I read a typo-riddled sample page, and apparently this guy thinks David Miscavige is a CIA operative. Is this actually a thing people think? Incredible. It is. It is a thing. I actually stumbled on this very shortly after um, going down the Scientology rabbit hole. In fact, it was part of my my rabbit hole journey coming out of Scientology to find out about this. And and I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. And I still think it's, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. There are conspiracy theories within the ex-Scientology world, just like there are conspiracy theories in the Scientology world. And this... Uh, this idea basically is that L. Ron Hubbard was replaced by a body double back in 1973-74 time period um, and or another uh, ancillary idea here, another take on this is that David Miscavige was himself a CIA plant the entire time. And his job was to make sure that Scientology did not expand and did not thrive or grow because um, it has mind control technology and remote viewing technology and, you know, this whole exteriorization and, and, and this has spy and military applications. And if you want to, you know, go down this rabbit hole, Google Ingo Swan Scientology and you will go down the most bizarre bunch of nonsense since Flat Earth. It's crazy. But... People are going to think what they want to think. Silo Simon. Are children who are in Scientology able to be kicked out of Scientology? For adults, I can see how the Church of Scientology can just kick them out without legal repercussions. But what happens to kids that are declared suppressive? Do children ever get declared? Do the parents of the child still communicate and take care of the child? What is the youngest age that you've ever seen someone get kicked out of Scientology? Okay, I have never once seen any child get declared suppressive or kicked out of Scientology that way. So the question's kind of moot. Uh, there is not one instance I've ever seen of that. 
Um, what I have seen is children sent to the RPF. And that's old. That's as old as the RPF is, that kids were being sent to it. Um, kids have been physically disciplined, abused, sexually abused. I mean, there has been no shortage of uh, real, real nonsensical behavior with kids in Scientology. So don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way saying Scientology is, you know, really a good thing. What I'm saying is that I not, not once have I ever heard of a kid that getting declared. Um, uh, now I have, and there are these corrective schools, these ranches, and I did a whole interview with Nathan Rich um, about this and also Larissa Smith about this because they were two Scientology kids who were difficult to deal with, who were out of control, and they were sent off to these schools, these ranches out in the desert in Mojave in order to be disciplined for months or even years on end before they would be sent back to their parents. So that's the closest thing we've got to what you're talking about. And that kind of ostracization is done by the family, not by the church. The church doesn't order the family to send their kids off. Um, some Scientologist sets up the Mojave Desert School and says, okay, I'll deal with your troublesome kids. And then Scientology parents who are having a hard time with their kids ship them off to this place, you know, because they don't know what else to do with them. So that's not that's not really official church activity. It's Scientologists using Scientology, you know, with the church's permission to to run these sort of disciplinary camps and and, and work camps and stuff for these kids. So that's the that's the harshest uh sort of treatment that they get in that world that way. Travis. How much money would it take for you to star in an off-off Broadway production of Cats? My price is $5 million. <laughs> okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me ramble on here. I hope my answers were useful, entertaining, informative in some fashion, and I hope you guys got something out of it. I, regardless, thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. I really do appreciate you giving me your time. And if you like my channel, like what I'm doing, then please do like and share this, this video, get it, share it around the internet. I want to grow my channel, grow the show. And of course, if you um, are so inclined, you can always support the show through Patreon or PayPal. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.